You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. This is Mr. Refined, and you're listening to the Earn and Invest Podcast. I've always believed that our suffering has to have meaning that there has to be a coherent story we tell ourselves about the trials and tribulations we face. Otherwise, it all feels random. My life has been this way. With each hurdle or heartbreak, an essential part of the healing process has been to assign meaning, to interpret why. That is why I never liked the book of Job. I came across it first in college. As you may remember, it is a tale of an epic fight between God and Satan. Job, a humble yet highly successful servant of God, becomes the testing ground of faith. Satan is allowed to rain terror down on his life, bring about the worst kind of suffering, all as a test, to see if he can push this poor scrawny human too far. After losing everything and everyone of importance to him, Job bends but does not break. He becomes bitter but will not renounce his faith. Satan vanquished, God appears and explains to him that it is not of his understanding or ability to question why. He must just accept. And then he rewards Job by returning everything to him and more. And it strikes me as rather unfair. Job has been burned badly by Satan's hot fires, but is not allowed to find meaning or purpose behind his struggles. Yet, in my humble estimation, those who are the most successful of us are not burned by these so-called fires, but better yet forged into something new something better. Refined. Refined by fire. Mr. Refined is a 36-year-old single Christian millennial father and foster father of two. He has degrees in physics, aerospace, and mechanical engineering, and has carried a day job in various engineering disciplines since he has graduated. He is passionate about investing and growing wealth, and in many ways, his story reminds me of a modern-day Job. Mr. Refined, welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Doc G. It's a pleasure to be here. It's a pleasure to have you. You've been on the show before, and then you and I hooked up at FinCon. Is that right, last year? Yeah, that's right. I had the pleasure of sitting next to you as you got your award at the Plutus Awards. It was a great time and a lot of fun. I will always remember that time, sitting there, waiting for the name to be called, and then being utterly shocked that we actually won. <laughs> utterly shocked. 
Yeah. See, I wasn't so shocked. In fact, I was actually sitting next to a girl and as they called the category, I noticed we had some drinks on the floor and I was moving those to the side and she kind of looks at me like, what are you doing? And then they called you and she looks back at me with her jaw open and she's like, how did you know that? I was like, uh, had a suspicion. I appreciate the faith in this podcast. So it's much appreciated. I want to jump right into the questions here. And let's start at the point in your life and the point in your story where things start going horribly wrong. Your college sweetheart is pregnant. You're coming out of college with over $100,000 in debt and about to start a new job. And then something funny happens. Your car dies. Tell us about it. Shortly after I graduated, I found out that my girlfriend was pregnant. And uh, that was a surprise for me because we were not married. So I was looking at having the child out of wedlock. That was just a little bit disappointing for my traditional family values. But it was just a mistake that I knew that I had to embrace and take extreme accountability for. And I wanted to make the best out of that situation. I really cared for my girlfriend. I felt like I had the maturity to make it a good situation. So about a week, I think, before her due date, my vehicle had died and I'd cracked the engine block. It was not a repairable thing. I mean, it was a pretty critical issue the car. So my dad helped me, you know, sprint to find a new vehicle. And I was just looking around. And within that week, I found a new vehicle for, but it cost me 4,500 bucks of unexpected expense right before the baby came. That was difficult. So your car dying, that's no fun. And it's certainly bad luck, but it's not life changing. So I assume as you got past that hurdle, you're ready to start a new job. Yeah. So I was actually transitioning jobs at this point. I graduated in 2008. That was a tough time for the economy, as we all know. It was a tough time to find a job as well. I had a actually really fortunate circumstance. I remember the day after I graduated, it was a beautiful spring day and I went out on my porch of the fraternity house and I was just sitting in a chair, just soaking up some sun. My flip phone in my pocket rang and I pulled it out and answered it. And it was a company that I'd interned for. And they said, hey, have you graduated? And I said, actually, just yesterday, I've had my last final. And they're like, would you be interested in coming to work for us? And I said, absolutely. I happen to need a job. They could only offer me an extension of my internship. They couldn't offer me a full-time position. They explained that they were on a hiring freeze and just couldn't hire anybody, but they could get me in through the exception of this intern thing. And it didn't come with benefits. So I said, well, you know, I am looking for a full-time position with benefits, but I'd be happy to do that for the meantime. And so what looked like a piece of maybe good luck came with one small sour note, no benefits, which means, of course, no health insurance. That became really important. It did become important. There was probably a four-week window of my life where I didn't have health insurance. I ended up finally finding a full-time position, and I accepted that position, and I went over to work for that company before those benefits had started. So I just started this job. I was assaulted, and I was beaten pretty severely. They kicked in my chest. They broke a couple ribs. I had bruising across my face. They punctured and collapsed one of my lungs. So I was just uh, heavily targeted. Do you care to go into the details? Was this a random act of violence or what happened? Looking back on it, I think it was just a case of being in the wrong place at the wrong time. I kind of got a bad feeling about the guys that were around me and there were about 20 of them. Telling this story is a little bit, you know, like reliving it. So it's just hard at points for me here, but I'm going to work through this and I'm not going to be your first guest to cry on the show. (laughs) (laughs) I guess I would say wrong place, wrong time. Later during the investigation, I found out that they were junior MMA fighters, you know, not pro circuit, but basically training cannon fodder for the real big time guys. And they were just guys that were adrenaline rush trying to, you know, flex their muscles and show who they were and thought they were the toughest thing. And, you know, there were about 20 of them. So I didn't stand a significant chance. You had thought that you were in a little bit of a tricky situation, paying all sorts of money for a new car, coming to a new job with 
a huge amount of debt and all of a sudden your world is turned upside down and in a sense, you're almost fighting for your life. Yeah, literally, totally fighting for my life. So I'd gotten assaulted. I went to the hospital. The doctor uh, was hoping that my lungs would stay inflated. When I was admitted, you know, I was denying, I guess, how severe I was injured. And I realized how bad it was when I just couldn't catch my breath. And when I got to the hospital, they had given me some pain medication. I don't remember exactly what it was, if it was morphine or another one, but the nurse gave it to me and she says, oh, I'll be back in a couple minutes. This will set in. We're going to begin your surgery immediately because they needed to put tubes into my chest because my lung had collapsed, creating like a cavity inside my chest. And I'm sure you understand this as a doctor, but for the benefit of your audience, they need to put a tube inside that cavity of my chest and put suction on that tube to suck all the air out and allow my lung to reinflate as I breathe. They gave me this pain medication. They're like, okay, I'll be back in a couple minutes. And when she came back in, I kept answering the questions that she was asking. And she wasn't making eye contact, but she turned around and looked at me and she said, you shouldn't be so coherent. And she looked at the chart and looked at my IV and gave me another dose of pain medication and came back a few minutes later and it was the same story. I was just perfectly coherent. And she's like, well, this doesn't seem right. And I think she went out of the room and maybe checked with the doctor or something, but she comes back with an assistant. She says, okay, we're going to start surgery. We don't have any more time to wait. I've given you the maximum amount of pain medication I can for your body weight. And I was like, well, that's terrible because I don't feel any different. Yeah, I'm still like hurting and clutching my chest, you know, because my lung is collapsed. And she says, I'm sorry, there's nothing we can do. We have to begin surgery. The assistant that she was with grabs the scalpel and just starts cutting in between my ribs. And I just was gritting and I grabbed the hospital bed and I just clinched down as hard as I possibly could. You know, I screamed and I looked over at the, the assistant that was cutting me and I was like, oh, that really hurts. That knife is so sharp. And that made her nervous and she starts shaking. Okay, I shouldn't have said that. Now she's nervous. And I said, all right, give that scalpel to her, the other nurse. And I just held on to the hospital bed. I shut up. I closed my eyes and I didn't say anything else because I didn't want to make the other nurse nervous. So they just had to begin. And they cut, cut a hole in my chest, inserted the tube. That began my stay in the hospital. I've been present for multiple chest tube insertions as a physician, and it is fairly painful procedure. In fact, I'd say it's one of the more painful procedures we do, even for people who don't have an issue with pain medicine, it turns out that you genetically aren't as susceptible to pain medication as other people. You learned that in the hospital. It was a month of being in the hospital of pain for you, wasn't it? It was. It was a month of terror and nightmares, literally nightmares. So they experimented with different pain medications, trying to find something that would be effective for me. And they had to put in multiple tubes at different points. As they did CAT scans and as time went on, they moved tubes lower in my chest and higher in my chest just to try to optimize, I guess, suction on my lung. Um, so I had multiple incisions. I won't even try to describe the pain. It wouldn't be appropriate for a podcast. But I mean, you can just imagine trying to stick a finger between one of your ribs and push as hard as you can. It's a thousand times worse than that. I've broken bones before, and I would say this experience in the hospital was easily 10 times worse than those experiences. I would take 10 broken bones over what I've suffered in the hospital again, but it was incredibly painful. Let's talk a little bit about your mindset at that time. I mean, did you feel sorry for yourself? I didn't necessarily feel sorry for myself. No, at that point, I was just kind of taking the circumstances in stride. While I was in the hospital, uh, my stepmom <laughs> came in and said, well, I've got some news. You know, your car was hit while you're in the hospital. And I was like, oh, really? Like, what else? You know, and I didn't even want to think about it. I didn't want to think about repairing it because I was just grateful that it wasn't my body. I was in so much pain laying on my side in the hospital bed, trying to find a pain medication that would work for me. 
you know, and some worked okay, but I mean, I was just in constant pain. So it, it did wear down on me. It wore down on me quite a bit. I realized how bad it was on day 27. On day 27, I had my limit. I basically hit the threshold of pain that I could stand. I remember saying a little prayer and I was just like, all right, I don't want this anymore. I have figured out how much pain I can endure and how much I don't want to live through. And this is how much I don't want to live through. Three days came into my mind. I don't know. I don't know why, but I just was thinking about three days and I said, okay, well, that's my ultimatum. You know, and I just gave God an ultimatum as if you could. And I said, if this pain doesn't go away in three days, I don't want this anymore. Like I, I'm ready. And I remember even going so far as thinking about how that would happen and how that would work out. And I knew that I was connected to all these machines and that there were alarms and they were keeping me breathing. I reasoned that if I unplugged the alarms first and then unplugged the breathing machine, that maybe I could slip quietly into the night. But I just knew that I was at my limit. Maybe everyone doesn't know, but your wife was very pregnant and just delivered or was about to deliver? While I was in the hospital, she had gone into labor. Actually, I think it was the same day she had gone into labor, uh, same day as day 27. And she went into labor in a different hospital. When I was in the hospital, and this wasn't my wife, by the way, this was my girlfriend. And she said, well, should I come to that hospital? I'm like, no, this hospital is terrible. They can't manage my pain. One of the nurses while I was in the hospital turned off my breathing machine instead of kept it on. So I went an entire night, and this may explain some of the reason why I was in the hospital so long, but I went the entire night without suction on that lung. In the morning, she came back in and she realized her mistake and she's like, oh my gosh, you know, I turned this off and it was supposed to be on and she turned it back on and I was furious at her. But I looked at her and she was super apologetic and she was super honest and she's like, this is 100% my mistake. And I thought, all right, well, you're human. This is critical to me. You know, my life's sitting here on a thread, but I saw the look in her eyes and I just, I felt compassion that she really was trying her best made a mistake. And so I never really followed that up with any kind of malpractice or anything. I just accepted that. After praying that prayer, my girlfriend, I got the message that she went into labor in a different hospital. Uh, that's, that's a low point. You know, I felt absolutely devastated. You know, I wondered if she was in as much pain as I was. I'm supposed to be the man and I'm supposed to be there for her. And I'm laying in another hospital on my back. I felt absolutely powerless. I felt like I had absolutely no control over my life. And um, just that I couldn't have that little happy experience of being the guy there holding her hand, making everything wonderful. I was pretty distraught over that. And one of the nurses came in and she said, our policy is that you can't record any video while you're in the hospital. That's just our policy. But here's a laptop. And if you want, you can Skype your girlfriend uh, to see your baby being born. And I was just really grateful that she was making that exception. And she kind of winked at me and she's like, you know, we do this sometimes for servicemen that are, are back from the war when their wives are pregnant or whatever. I said, all right, all right, set me up. So for the next couple of days while she was in labor, I watched her go through that while I was on the other side of a computer screen in another hospital watching my son being born. You had mentioned that you said kind of that prayer to God. You, you said three days. Yeah. Was there this feeling of why is God punishing me? Why is he doing this to me? Why all at once? Absolutely. I just didn't understand it. Like, you know, you said about the Job story. That's pretty much how I felt. It's interesting that you picked that story. It was like, you know, my entire life, I've worked really hard. I worked really hard in high school to get good grades so I could get into a good college. I wanted to go to a good college so I could get a good job. I wanted to get a good job so I could raise a good family. I wanted to work hard and I always have. I always 
put in overtime, worked as hard as I could, vied for any promotions that I possibly could, tried to always take the path of greatest integrity, tried to always be as honest, even when it's painful, as honest as humanly possible. And I felt like I was doing the right things. I felt like I was checking the right boxes and building a good life. And, uh, you know, things are going pretty bad at this point in my life. So I absolutely felt like, why? You know, like how much more could you kick me while I'm down? What's the point of all this? What's the meaning behind this? That was really hard. And honestly, I was kind of passing in and out of consciousness. I was tired and I was just in a lot of pain as my girlfriend was going through labor. She finally gave birth and uh, it was a son. I was actually expecting a daughter, but it was a son. She went into labor, I guess, before day 27 for me, but it was just so hard to be distant and to not be able to hold my son. It was a definite low point. It worked out that it wouldn't be the lowest point in my life, but at the time it was. Every good story is a redemption story. In a sense, with you, it seems there was some redemption. You get out of the hospital and the next five years start looking up. Is that right? Yeah, that is. So to tie that off, I guess it was exactly three days later when from me praying that prayer to meeting my son, she came to visit me in my hospital and I was still there on breathing machines. This was after surgery and I got to meet my son. All the nurses and all the doctors on the floor knew about this and they knew my situation and that I had to watch him via Skype be born. They were kind of lining the halls and lining my room as she walked in and uh, she walks in and she sets him down on my lap and uh, I just hold that little seven pounder and I uh, had a ridiculous smile. The best, I mean, that's the best I'd felt in those 30 days. And uh, I'm just looking into his eyes and I, somebody took a picture in the room and I have it on my refrigerator right now. Friends come over, they're like, oh, this is a funny picture. Hold on a second. How come she's in clothes and you're in the hospital bed with a hospital gown on? <laughs> so that's an interesting story that I get to tell them. But, uh, you know, I was looking in his eyes and that was so hard because I realized that I had to endure everything that I was going through. I had to get healthy. I had to get through this situation because somebody would need to be there to be able to teach my son how to throw a spiral football, how to cast a fishing rod, how to deal with bullies. And I knew that that had to be me. And I wasn't going to give up. And I just committed at that point. I said, whatever it takes, whatever I have to endure, I commit to getting through it so I can be there for him. So I can be a good father to him and teach him the ways that a man should live a life. I realized that weak men are defined by their circumstances and strong men are defined by their commitments. I looked over at the surgeon and the doctors and I said, uh, when can I go home? And they said, well, you're just recovering right now. We feel good about your surgery. We think that's going to be a good effect. So you'll have to stay on a breathing machine, but we have a portable breathing machine. You'll just have a tube you know, that you're connected to running through your chest. So you won't be able to move around a lot, but you'd be able to go home and do the rest of your recuperating there. I said, let's go. So I got to take my son out of the hospital that day. I realized later that that was day 30. That was the third day since I prayed that prayer and the answer was just seeing my son being placed in my lap and realizing that sometimes there's more to live through in life than just your own discomfort. It's not necessarily about how hard the mountain is to prove to yourself that you can climb it. It's about showing other people that that mountain can be climbed. So I realized that it's not all about me and that I'm here for more than just myself. We were both wheeled out of the hospital, holding hands by wheelchair. Um, I had my son on my lap and we were just getting wheeled out together. It looked pitiful, I'm sure, but we went home. I owe well, great thanks to both of our parents taking care of us kind of in those early days. Got out of the hospital and uh, started recuperating at that point. Things did start going better. It was difficult because I had an enormous amount of medical debt. The bill started rolling in just under $100,000, but things started going well. I, I had that debt to deal with as well as student debt. That felt 
almost unsurmountable. Like how do I deal with just under $100,000 worth of student debt? On top of that, just under $100,000 worth of medical debt. I ended up negotiating down the medical debt to around ten dollars or $12,000. As far as the student debt, a rare, I guess, lucky scenario where um, one of the lenders was also in the housing market. And this was shortly after 2008. They went bankrupt. So they had a collecting attorney that tried to collect that money from me in like one fellow swoop. And I got an attorney and the attorney made a response and kind of told him my debt situation and my you know health situation and that I wasn't even working at the time and uh, made a reply. They stopped pursuing the debt entirely. So the collecting attorney that was trying to settle that bankruptcy case just wrote it off as uncollectible. So I had a little bit of a windfall that that debt didn't need to be collected. That plus negotiating my medical debt down then it felt more reasonable. It felt like there was hope because at one point I was looking at that debt, just thinking like, all right, what do I do? Do I just leave this country and leave the debt here and go start anew in some other country? I ultimately chose not to do that because that wasn't the path of greatest integrity. And I was just looking for other ways that I could tackle this debt. I knew that I had a lot, probably more than the average Joe has to pay off. So I was looking for smart strategies or outside the box thinking. That's what led me to negotiating the debt. Is that also when you discovered the personal finance community and financial independence? It wasn't until a much, much lower hour of my life. So after that, I started paying off that debt. I worked really hard because I just wanted to tackle it. I come from a family that doesn't believe in debt and I didn't either. I didn't, I didn't want that burden because the debtor is slave to the lender. One of the feelings that really struck me was to finish off my degree. I was $3,000 away from having all subsidized loans, all loans that were interest deferred. So I could take like six months off and go backpack around Europe or something. And that last loan that I was short of, I was negotiating with the school and they're like, no, you have to pay this. You're not going to get a degree until you pay this. And I was like, oh man. So I had to take out some private money that had to be paid back really quick. And I remember the just oppressive feeling of feeling like I was really getting pinched for that money payback. So I just hated the feeling. I never wanted to be in debt. So I was aggressive about paying it back. And I paid it back in about five years after I graduated. I had a goal of paying it off by the age of 30. And I did. I paid it off, but it took a lot of aggressive payment, living well below my means, driving an old rusty 1998 Honda Civic, doing all those tenants of the financial independence retire early or fire community. I didn't know fire at the time. I didn't even know it was a thing, but I just knew to come up with the amount of money that I owed, I had to save on housing and I had to save on vehicle because those were the big ones. I just tried to be as frugal as I possibly could, live well below my means. And I finally got that paid off. And then um, lifestyle creep happened. I'm used to paying off that debt. And once that was paid off, I was like, oh my gosh, this is great. I have any more debt. I have this income. What do I do with it? I really knew what I wanted at that point. I had still been dating my college sweetheart and I started to design a custom engagement ring. So I put a down payment on that. I wanted to get a house. I knew I was throwing money into a blast furnace in my area. It worked out a lot better to own a home than to rent. I wanted to get a home and I wanted that perfect American iconic house with the white picket fence, a big yard for two dogs and good school district. And I was able to find a house that met all of those things. So put the down payment on the house and I thought everything was going well. I crushed just that I have a down payment on engagement ring. I have my dream house. Uh, my girlfriend and I had kind of listed out everything that we wanted in a house. And it was that. Been in a Bible study with my girlfriend at the time and I was coming to faith and I was like, all right, I know what I got to do. I've got two choices. I can either marry this girl or I can break up with her. And I couldn't stand the idea of breaking up with her. So I was like, we're going to do this. I'm going to lock in the American dream, have the, the beautiful girl, the beautiful home, the awesome job. This is going to happen. And that's when I ran into the real rock bottom of my life. Tell us a little bit about that. So it sounds like everything is going amazingly well. We've already heard about being in the hospital and the amount of pain you were in. 
getting to the point where you didn't even think you could take it anymore. That sounds to most of us like that would be the rock bottom, but you are about to go right back to that place. What happened? I kind of feel like everything that happens to you happens to help prepare you for what's coming in the future. And I realize now, looking back from where I am today, I can look at all those events that I've suffered through and realize that they all had their place and they all had their lesson and they all had their purpose to make me who I am today. I know that that experience in the hospital gave me the strength and gave me the understanding that you are what you're committed to. You are not defined by the circumstances you're around. You're only refined by your circumstances. At that point, I remember putting the down payment on the house. That was the iconic moment in my life. And I had come home early from work. I put two wine glasses on the counter and I popped a bottle of wine and my girlfriend came in the door and I said, it's done. You know, I got a down payment on the house. We're going to move in. And I was thinking of like an idea of proposing to her, you know, when she walked across the threshold of the house and doing something like that, but just toying with the idea. Well, when I popped that bottle of wine, she wasn't dancing up and down like I expected. There was definitely some hesitance in her reaction. I was like, what the heck is that? This is the perfect house. It meets everything she was looking for. I don't understand. The week of closing on the house, she had broken up with me. This is ridiculous. She doesn't realize that you know I was planning to propose to her. She doesn't realize how much I care about her and how important this is to me um, that we become a family. And I'm like, I just need to show her that I love her. And I just doubled down on trying to show her love and affection and attention. And I thought that she would come around and be like, yeah, okay, we've dated forever. This was just a feeling that I had and I'm over it. And we would get back together. It didn't go that way. The week of closing, I thought there was something more. And I've always respected her privacy, but I picked up her phone and I went through it and I read some text messages that absolutely devastated me. And I've kept reading that text message string all through the night. I was sitting uh, at my living or my dining room table, just reading and reading and reading. I realized how long that text message string had gone on and that she had been having an affair with one of her coworkers on me for over a year. And I was absolutely devastated, just completely blindsided. While I was putting a down payment on a house and on an engagement ring, she was off having an affair with a coworker. She moved out. I was more comfortable letting it go, now knowing why she wanted to break up with me. And within a week, she had a new apartment. I think she'd already lined that up. She obviously had a new boyfriend and she left the dogs with me and had already had a new dog like a week later. And I just remember sitting there in my new house. I didn't even know if I wanted to close on the house at that point because it was a huge family house. It's way more rooms, way more space than I need if I'm not going to grow this family that I'd had hopes of growing. And I remember sitting in that house, just resenting it, just saying like, I don't even want this. This is too much for me. I can't even take care of this on my own. I was completely demoralized and completely broken down at that point. And let's talk about this family a little bit. You had a son and didn't you have a foster daughter at the time too? I had a foster daughter, which is something that I always wanted to do. I had her since she was about two years old. So before I bought the house, I'd probably had her for a year or two at that point. There was no hope that she was going to go back to her parents. They were unable to complete their rehab plans basically. And the the courts found them unfit to for reunification. And the state's goal is reunification whenever possible. Well, I knew that she was a long-term foster and I had already moved forward with trying to adopt her. And I had an attorney and I was going through the process and it was just one delay after another after another. And the court case kept getting deferred and deferred. I'd been spending an enormous amount of money. In fact, I spent so much that I had to let my attorney go and go find one that was a lot cheaper because I thought, hey, we're just going to do a power push. We're going to get this done. It's going to be done quick. It turned out to be a marathon more than it was a sprint. So I got a more affordable attorney and tried to just continue to adopt her. And it was while I was trying to adopt her that 
my girlfriend at the time left me. And DSS, which in my state stands for Department of Social Services, the department responsible for taking care of kids, the government agency, they uh, said, well, we're going to treat this like a divorce. You were in a long-term committed relationship, even though you weren't married, we're going to treat it like a divorce. And what we do in that circumstance is we pull the kids because we think that your home is an unfit environment with all that emotional turmoil for a child to be living. So we're pulling your foster daughter. They had threatened to pull her and I was devastated. I mean, on top of trying to cope with losing my girlfriend and my entire life stream just falling apart on the one yard line. Now DSS was taking this little girl away from me and I'm the only father that she had known. I changed her diapers. I'd been the only real person that has imprinted on her. Now DSS is threatening to take her away. I got on the phone immediately with my attorney and I said, all right, we're going to do everything we can to try to keep this little girl. I didn't know where the money was going to come from, but because I knew it was going to cost a lot. But I was like, we need to appeal. And she said, okay, give me the letter. So I got the letter from DSS and I was reading through the seven-sided tenants or whatever that the grounds for them pulling my foster daughter. And I realized that like six of them were from my girlfriend who is now moved out of the house. And I was like, okay, so really only one out of seven of these is your grievance against me. And I made an appeal case. I went in front of a board and I said, all right, what would it take for me to keep her? I propose this, this, and this. And I said, if you know, my girlfriend's out of the picture, would you be agreeable to letting me continue to foster her and adopt her? as a single dad. I was trying to go through this speech and make this case and they kind of cut me short. And I was like, I didn't make all my points. What are you doing? Like, dang it, this is not a good sign. They had me step out of the room. Less than five minutes later, they called me back into the room. I was like, oh my gosh, that was really quick. This is not good news. And they said, you know, we're in agreement. We're going to let you keep her and you can continue with your foster daughter. I was so relieved uh, with my broken lungs. I breathed the biggest breath of relief I possibly could. So I continued with that adoption. I almost lost her at the same time as almost losing the house that I didn't want to close on because my girlfriend had left me. And unfortunately, that was the same time that my company was going through layoffs. So I worked for a big Fortune 500 company and they were notorious for laying people off. You know, they would go through waves of hire and waves of fire. I was in more emotional turmoil than I'd ever been in life. And I was really having a hard time focusing at work. And I think that played into a one of the reasons why I was a candidate for the layoff. But yeah, they, they downsized my department significantly and I was one of the affected people. So now I'm laid off and I have no job. And I was worried about losing my foster daughter and I was worried about even closing on this house. And I definitely lost the girlfriend. That's one of the reasons why it's so difficult for me to tell this story. Because it's like, you talk a lot about story arch when you talk to people. And if you look at the iconic hero's journey, you see the exact opposite of my life experiences, right? So the guy loses parents young and overcomes it, supernatural interference that gives him ability and hope and confidence to go conquer this insurmountable enemy. He goes and fights this epic battle, destroys the enemy, wins the fight and gets the girl and lives happily ever after. My story is a little bit different. For that reason, it was really difficult for me to put out there, but I'm glad I did because what I realized is that the story isn't finished. The story isn't over. It continues on. And while I lost the fight and while I may have lost the girl, the conclusion isn't written. And this story is just at the inflection point. And the chapter that's to come is going to be the best chapter of success that I could ever hope for because I have more commitment, more determination, more strength than I ever thought I would in life or that I ever would have you know, come to on my own. And I realized that you know, I may have lost one fight, but I didn't lose the war. You know, I got back up and all you have to do in life is get back up one more time than you get knocked down. And that's the difference between being a success and being a failure. Life is going to knock you down in the way that I got knocked down or in any other way that life gets to you. All you have to do is get back up. You may lose a few fights along the way, but at the end of the day, if you keep getting back up, a day will come when you're the only one left standing. And then 
you're the victor. You get to raise your hands above your head. So that's all I hope to do is just complete this story with a chapter of incredible success. You know, I, I get a beautiful girl who maybe never would have looked at me before I had all this strength and commitment and determination. I get a great job. You know, I get to end this story with incredible success and financial independence. But yeah, at that point, I felt like I had lost it all. Are you ever scrolling through your Facebook feed and wonder, boy, I wish I could listen to another episode of the Earn and Invest podcast? Well, now you can engage in our content in two different ways. One, you can go to our website, www.earnandinvest.com. That's E-A-R-N-A-N-D-I-N-V-E-S-T.com. Or you can check us out on Facebook at the Earn and Invest Facebook group. The easiest way to get there is www.diversify.com backslash Facebook. That's D-I-V-E-R-S-E-F-I dot com backslash Facebook. We hope to see you there and engage with our community on topics very similar to the ones you'll find on the podcast. Now back to the show. This episode is brought to you by Range Rover Sport. Range Rover Sport leads by example. With a visceral, uncompromising, and dramatic feel, this car helps you rise to the occasion. How does it do that? Range Rover Sport has powerful on-road performance and commanding all-terrain capability by combining assertiveness with signature Range Rover refinement. This is the car that redefines sporting luxury. The new Range Rover Sport features advanced cabin technologies such as active noise cancellation and cabin air purification, Purposeful cockpit-like driving position and award-winning PIVI Pro infotainment is at the heart of the experience and provides intuitive control of the vehicle systems. Design your Range Rover Sport at LandRoverUSA.com. Once again, explore and build your Range Rover Sport at L-A-N-D-R-O-V-E-R-U-S-A.com. That's LandRoverUSA.com. When you hit this down point with your girlfriend leaving and all the problems you had with the court system, feeling like you were at your lowest, did you feel some solace knowing that five years before you had been also at a low point and you would come back from it? Absolutely. That first experience had given me the strength that I absolutely needed to get through that moment because this was the emotional low of my life. It was definitely the hardest thing that I've ever had to deal with. And I think honestly, part of why I probably don't talk a lot about my story is because here in American culture, men are masculine. My story is demasculating because I lose the fight and I don't get the girl and I didn't want to talk about it. And I was really blown away that I'd never heard a story like that anywhere else. But then after going through those experiences and speaking to other people about them and admitting why I'm in such a low point, I was blown away by how many other people came out of the woodwork. How many married men that said, oh, yeah, I had that circumstance with my wife last year or something. I'm like, what? I've known you and you've never told me that? You've never shared that with me? Or other people telling me that they were assaulted too friends that I'd known for years had never shared that with me. And I was like, why don't you guys talk about this? If I would have only known, I would have had somebody to go to when this happened to me for support and strength. And I think it's because it's demasculating, like the four dimensions of the human character. You've got the physical, the mental, the spiritual, and the emotional. And in America, we're taught as men to deny the emotional. But what I was learning at that time was to embrace the emotional. And I had pretty much just buried that dimension of human character under a rug most of my life saying, oh, I'll just use any emotional distress to get angry and I'll use that anger to overcome my circumstances and then I will meet with success. That 
is not the best plan. The best plan to deal with emotional lows is to address it, to embrace it and admit it and go through those steps of grieving. You know, like first you're going to feel shock and then you're going to hit denial and then you're going to finally get to acceptance and then you're going to go through healing and then ultimately forgiveness. And that is a healthy plan to deal with those emotional lows. So having already been through that once in my life, I knew surrender was not an option for me. I knew what I was capable of and what strength I had inside. And I knew that I was not going to give up entirely here. I was going to be beaten down for a while. I accepted that, but I was going to get back up. And I knew because somebody had to raise my kids. Somebody had to show them an example of strength. Somebody had to be a good example of leadership in their lives. So it did take me a long time after that to emotionally recover. And there were a lot of days where I just cried myself to sleep, but I got through it and I knew I would. You know, I just stayed committed to the basics. In fact, my life was so chaotic that I literally had to write everything down that really mattered to me on a list. And I put the top five of those categories on my mirror every morning because I just didn't have the emotional, mental capacity to deal with everything life was throwing at me at that time. And I just had on the top of my list, faith, friendships, family, finance, job. And then I didn't even go beyond that. Like I didn't even continue that list. Let's talk about faith a little bit. One thing that continues to surprise me about the story behind the book of Job is that Job, in the end, never loses faith. And listening to your story, I've heard you mention religion and Christianity before. I don't think we have to go into specifics, but tell me how you didn't lose faith with all this going on. (laughs) That's a good question. I have spent most of my life completely secular, not Christian at all. Really out there trying to live what today is termed as the best life, right? So just trying to live with this little FOMO as much partying and having a good time and dating beautiful women and whatever. That's pretty much how I led the beginning of my life. It was when I was in that Bible study with my girlfriend, realizing that I needed to marry her. Like I needed to make that situation right. I needed to make a decision. That's really what led me to faith. And it was probably that, that when I was in the hospital praying that prayer, I realized the way out isn't necessarily going to be rainbows and sunshine. The way out can sometimes feel like a curse, but no matter what you're tempted in, there always is a way out. And I knew that having survived what I did in the hospital, I knew that no matter how bad things would get, there would be a way out of this situation. And I couldn't see it. I was in the midst of the rainstorm. It's hard to imagine that there's green pastures on the other side of that rainstorm. I knew that I just had to keep going and I just had to get back up and I just had to get through this. And that in time will heal all wounds. I knew that I had to move forward. It was really interesting at that time because I'd lost my job. For the first time in my life, I had given the full tithe and that felt like a ton of money. I had never really given that much money to any one thing before, just given it up. Like, oh, all right, prove to me that I'm not an idiot in this. I could really use that money now that I'm unemployed. God, I need that money. And I was looking at my bank account and trying to think of what I could do. About a week later, I had looked at my account and I was blown away. I was like, wait a second. Uh, there's been a mistake. The bank has made some kind of mistake. I've got way too much money in this account. So I started looking into the details because I just didn't want to call the bank and tell them they made a mistake, right? (laughs) So I was looking into the details and it was a confluence of checks that just all hit my account at the same time. I had a dependent care FSA that fully cashed out. So that was about 5,000. I had a tax rebate. So I'm in the 0% tax bracket just because I have tax credits that fully offset all of my tax liability. So I actually got a paycheck from government that was a little above and beyond my tax liability. That's a lot of money. That was all the tax money that I'd been paying in came back to me at that time of year. What else? I'm trying to think of the other checks. I got a severance check. Oh, and despite getting laid off, I had performed well enough to earn the maximum bonus check at work. All those checks hit at the same time. 
a week later looking at my account after being like, God, show me that I'm not a total fool in giving when I don't feel like I have anything to give. And then I saw all that money and I was like, okay, I'm good. Instead of it being this stressful situation of how quickly can I find a job, I can afford to take a little time off here. And that launched probably the best summer of my life. I didn't have stress to find another job. I was looking, but part-time looking. I was trying to understand more about finances and I was reading everything I could and consuming every podcast I possibly could. I had a friend give me a book called Set for Life. I think it might've been my adoption party for my daughter or maybe her birthday party, but I had just really gone down the rabbit hole of trying to understand finance. And my approach to it was to study millionaires and billionaires, self-made millionaires and billionaires, kind of thinking that if they did it within their lifetime, there's absolutely no reason I can't do it within my lifetime. You know, I know I have enough intelligence to do what they can do. I know I have enough determination, grit, and ability to work really hard and really long hours. If they can do it, so can I. So I just always had that hope, just saying I need to read enough biographies of millionaires and billionaires to try to figure out this recipe that they're using. And I started to piece that together from everything that I read, every blog I read, every book I read, came up with like four quadrants of wealth and uh, four paths to making money. And I was like, all right, if I can stick to these, one of them is real estate. And I started listening to the Bigger Pockets podcast. And that's when I discovered fire. It was just thirst for more and more resources, thirst for an answer. So I took this summer, this mini retirement, I call it. So it was the summer of unemployment. I mean, everything was perfect. If I think about my routine, I got up after I was well rested, slowly woke up and had a hot breakfast. We dropped my kids off to school and I would either work out or I would come back and read on my porch and just listen to the songbirds sing as I was reading a book, watching the sunrise sometimes or getting a good workout in every day. And then sometimes I would get caught up in reading and realize, oh man, it's already noon. Okay, I got to go make lunch. You know, did a little work in the afternoon and then picked up my kids and got to spend the entire evening with them. And, and in the summertime, we had even more time together. So I was spending a lot of time to go to the pool with them, to play football with them. And I was like, this is the life. All I need to do in life is set up some scenario where I can be at home as much as I want to with the kids, have enough money to cover my expenses, and have free time to actually pursue the things that I love doing in life. I started to brainstorm, like, what would make that happy life? What makes life perfect? And this mini retirement gave me the mental bandwidth to actually think about that question. Because up until that point, I was taxed. I'm a single dad. And, you know, I wake up at five o'clock to make them lunch, me lunch, coffee, bring them to work, drop them off at school. And then I go to work. I work a full day. I go pick them up from daycare after school. And then I race home to make them a meal. And this is assuming they don't have any extracurricular activities at night. We work on homework, they go to bed. And then I finally have a couple hours in the evening where I can catch up on laundry, dishes, whatever I've got to do, pay some bills before I'm completely exhausted and go to bed. In that routine, there's no bandwidth for decisions that are anything but your needs. You know, we, We've seen the Maslow's hierarchy of needs, and I was just in survival mode. One day to the next day to the next day, just a hamster on a wheel. Having that mini retirement really helped me think with the end in mind. What do I want to do in life? Maybe I'm not doing what I want to do. Do I want to go back to the same profession? Do I want to try something different? And the more I thought about it, I really came up with this statement that just said, I want to be able to work on stuff that I'm passionate about in an environment that fits my values, surrounded by people that I love and care about. I didn't ever find that in the corporate life. You're working with people that sit next to you, whether they're cool or terrible. You're showing up whenever they tell you to show up. You get the benefits they allow you to have. You work as long as they need you to work or get the project done or whatever it is. And I realized that there was more to life than just that grind. And that really changed my trajectory. And that set me on fire. Absolutely. That's when I found fire. 
I want to pivot a little bit to talk about mindset. Your blog is called Refined by Fire. You go by the moniker Mr. Refined. Clearly, the difficult things you've lived through have forged these traits that hopefully will lead to a very successful, happy life. But I want to go back a little bit further and talk about some other influences on you. You've mentioned in your blog, your father, I believe he's ex-military, and he instilled in you in this idea, adapt and overcome. Can you talk a little bit about that and how it relates to what you went through? My father's as tough as nails. He was a good example. He got shot twice fighting in Vietnam, and uh, he's still around today to talk about it. According to him, I've only ever put one day of hard work in in my life, and that was one day when I was removing a stump from his backyard, and I actually outworked him. (laughs) While he was recovering from his injuries, he came back and was a drill sergeant. So, I mean, I was basically raised by a drill sergeant. So he definitely taught me hard work. He definitely taught me to never quit and never give up. He raised me with that saying. He was very different. One thing that really stands out in my mind is when a lot of my friends, like say around the high school age, they'd leave the house and their parents would always say something like, don't do anything stupid or don't be out late or don't get into trouble or sayings like that. And my father, when I left the house, always said something different. He said, take smart risks. And that just stood out. I mean, every day I walked out of the house saying, all right, he's kind of empowering me to take some risks, but he's reminding me to be smart about it. That was just a different mindset than I ever saw any of my other friends getting. Every day that I left the house, I left with that thought on my mind of take smart risks. Well, what is a smart risk? You know, something that I could learn from, grow from, but not get in trouble for. That's kind of the attitude that I left the house with every day. Adapt and overcome was something that he always said. So whenever I came to a problem and I said, all right, dad, I can't do that. I don't have a solution. He would say, okay, adapt and overcome. What's your problem? How could you solve it? And then I had to sit there and out loud think to myself, brainstorm some solutions to that problem. And then he'd be like, yeah, which one of those sounds best to you? And I would say, well, I think it's number two. And he said, okay, go put that into practice. Go try that. I knew he was going to give me that routine every time I came up to him. And it really taught me autonomy. It really taught me that instead of just coming to him with some problem and basically saying, hey, I'm lazy, fix my problem. I knew exactly what he was going to say. He was going to say, how are you going to adapt to that? And how are you going to overcome it? I just started to think through that conversation in my head before I'd even go to him and say, okay, he's going to make me do this. So I'm going to list these three solutions. Which one is the best solution? Okay, well, I'm going to pick that one and I'm going to execute it. So at least when I go to him, I can say, hey, I tried that and it didn't work. Well, oftentimes I would find a solution on my own at that point. So he really taught me a lot of just problem resolution skills through his hard ways of learning, I guess, or hard ways of being a father. But I really admire those, seeing how it's shaped me and how it's refined me. My successes in life haven't ever come from these profound moments of aha moments like, oh, you got your big break. You got your million dollars fell in your lap. I haven't had a million dollar moment yet, but they've come through a process of just getting 1% better every day. Day one, I might be able to run three miles. Day two, I can run three and a half. So then you just build on top of that until eventually you're running a marathon and people are looking at you like, wow, you're in really great shape. How did you get in such great shape? And I'm like, one unsexy day after one other unsexy day stacked up all together that looked like I was struggling through it the whole time. You're just seeing the end result of a year's worth of training. In closing, what advice would you give to someone who you see is at their low point, like you were in the past? What can you tell them right now to help them start climbing their way back out? I would say that life has a way of mending itself, that your circumstances are temporary, but your decisions will last a lifetime. So I would just say that endure whatever circumstances you're in, because there will be a time where if you just get back up, that's all you have to do is keep going. You're going to find a way. 
if somebody has to sink or float, they're going to choose to float and they're going to fight hard to float. So sometimes you just have to float long enough for a rescue boat to come by. I'm not saying you need to count on somebody else for a rescue boat. Sometimes you're your own rescue boat. I like the imagery of the refined by fire, like you mentioned before, because a refiner's fire doesn't destroy indiscriminately like a forest fire. It doesn't consume completely like an incinerator. Whatever you put in the refiner's fire is refined. It's purified. It's melted down, usually into something precious, but the impurities are removed. It's not burned up. And that leaves what's pure and valuable intact. If you just let those circumstances that are difficult in your life refine away all the rough edges, refine away all the I want to quit, but I didn't moments, what you're left with is just pure determination. So get back up, keep fighting because the best is yet to come. And the last chapter of your story isn't written either. So you'll never get where you want to go by identifying with the victim mentality. You'll only get there by adopting the champion's mentality. You're a champion in the making. You're on mile three and a half, but one day you're going to be on mile 26 when people are looking at you and saying, how did you get there? To come back to the story of the book of Job, maybe one of the things that rubs me so wrong about the story is it's completely based on faith of God. And I think faith of God is a good thing. But as I hear your story, I realize that you had faith in yourself and faith that good things would eventually happen. And I think that just goes so far. And to me, that's a lot more palatable of a story. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I have unshakable faith today, but that's just because I've seen those steps of faith proven in my life. You know, when I gave the tithe and then all of a sudden I had more money in my account than I ever needed and it launched one of the best summers of my life. If you just do the right thing out of faith, eventually the result will come in your favor. Never give up on doing the right thing. And it's hard. It's really hard when all you want to do is give up or if you can tell a lie and get out of a situation, it's hard. But it's all about integrity. You're tested to prove to yourself whether or not you have integrity. That's what life is about. And if you just say yes to the integrity question every time, you're going to go through some hard tests. But those tests are going to fortify a character that is going to take you places you never otherwise would have been able to go. Things will always turn out right if you live and act with the right intentions. And I guess integrity is another way of saying that. Clearly, what you've been through has been a great example for the rest of us on how we can face hardships. I'd like to end the episode the way I end every episode, Mr. Refined. Why don't you tell us what's coming up next in your life and where we can find you? Uh, you can find me at refinedbyfire.co. That's .co, not .com. And um, you can also find me on social media at some version of that, refinedbyfire.co. The place that I'm most active is uh, my blog. So come there, check it out. And what's up next for me? I'm you know, working on the podcast of my own, which has been slowed down after life's lessons have taught me that the pace was just unsustainable and I was looking at burning out and not really enjoying the journey. So I've slowed that project down, but it's still in the works and I look forward to seeing what gets created. This has been the Earn and Invest podcast. On behalf of myself, Doc G, I'd like to thank Mr. Refined by Fire for telling his courageous story. That's a wrap. How did that feel? I mean, that, that's not an easy interview to give. No, it's not. Um, there, were, there were times where I had to just take a deep breath there. But uh, I'm glad I made it through it. Honestly, um, it's telling that story is, is like 
emotionally reliving it. So sometimes people come up and they're like, hey, I've heard you've been through a lot. You want to tell me that story? And the answer isn't always yes. I don't mean to be disrespectful of those people. It's just that I don't want to always emotionally relive that. So for the chance to me to, to, to write about it and to have the chance to come on a podcast and just say it, you know, I can give a resource to point people to saying, hey, if you want to know more, here it is. I don't have to emotionally relive it for you to understand it. Yeah, so and I, I feel good about that. I think you have very clearly told at least my understanding of your story. I know there are a lot of details we didn't get into. I yeah. know that there were some other downs and some other bad things that happened, but I believe you cogently told your story there. And I think we saw the depths of it, but also saw the ups, right? We saw how you came up and, and heard your philosophy. So to me, I'm real excited to get this out there in the sense that I think it, it, it tells, I, I love, I love stories that, that have an arc. I love stories that make sense that teach us something about the world. And I think your story does, right? Your story says a lot of good stuff. Well, good. Yep. I hope nobody else has to relive that one, that one. Yeah. And I hope, I mean, you know, it's really amazing. I know and being a doctor and then also working in hospice, you know, everybody faces trials and tribulations and the people who, what you and I might look at and go, oh, that's not so bad. But to them, it's horrible because that's all they know. That's right. But why there are also some people in our lives who tend to get really bad stuff and multiple episodes of bad stuff, I'll never understand, right? Why like the odd occurrence that some people just get it a lot worse than the rest of us. And not, I've tried to come to terms with that and I've tried to understand that a lot in my life. And um, that, that book that I mentioned earlier, Dr. Victor Frankl's Man's Search for Meaning, mm-hmm. phenomenal book for people that have been through a lot of adversity. It helps you because the, the guy that writes the book does it from the perspective of being a concentration camp victim, you know, okay. and he has to reason through all those things as an educated doctor. You know, he's analytical about it. Why do people choose to survive? Why do others not? Um, and it really comes down to, to people are pulled by two by two forces in life. They're either pushed by pain or pulled by possibility. And I always, my, my blog is out there to try to encourage people and pull them by possibility saying, Hey, this is what you could achieve if you just applied yourself. And other people need to be pushed by pain. And unfortunately I was so stubborn that I needed to be pushed by pain. You know, I, I was so proud. Oh, look at, I got a good education. I got a good job. I made all this money. I can afford this house. It was pure arrogance. And, and I really feel like God had to humble me and take all of that away and say, what do you have? You have nothing? Okay, now we can have a conversation. Now we can build you up from here. Now you can really realize what you have is not your own. It's just, it passes through your hands for a short period of time. And I'm just here to say, are you going to do the right thing with it? And today, I mean, I think I have a savings rate, or I'm sorry, I have an expense rate of around 50%. But my savings rate is only about 35%. So I give away a huge percentage of my income. Yeah, yeah. Well, not huge, but for me, it's, it's large, right? And I do that just because I feel like it's the right thing. I want to help people because I understand that um, the measure of a man is not by what he accumulated, but really what he was willing to give away. And I don't have a million dollars to give away now, but one day I will. And I, it'll be my honor to, to whatever cause needs that, give it away, you know? Yeah, I, I'm amazed actually at how much your story really does remind me of the book of Job. I hope you don't <laughs> mind that I pulled that out in the intro, but it it's such an interesting frame for your story because in a lot of ways, I think you were 
I hate to use this term, but you were being almost tested. It was like, let's see what other crap we can throw at this guy. Right. So let's give him one crappy thing and throw another and another and another. And, um, yeah, it's just, it's an interesting story. I hate to say it. Your your (laughs) hardships are an interesting story and I don't mean to make light of any of them because clearly, clearly they're, they were incredibly hard, but. And, and that's, that's why I put this out there that it, it was really, really hard to talk about this because I'm not the hero in my story. I'm, I'm the, the loser so far yet, you know, there is a chapter <laughs> to be written, right? But that's that, that yet is me learning. It's me understanding that we're not done. You know, that the curtain hasn't fallen yet and there's something beautiful out there to be created. So yeah, I went through all that, but it's to be able to create something beautiful. Sometimes you got to whitewash your canvas. You thought it was a good picture. You got to whitewash mm-hmm. it to make a masterpiece. And that's the cool thing that they find other artwork underneath all of these masterpieces. Yeah, now that yeah, they can exactly. look at them like x-ray vision. Like, and, oh my God. Yeah. That's life. You know, it's like, I you, like that metaphor. The canvas that you start with is not the one that you'll finish with. And the painting might be completely different than what you had in your mind at the beginning, but it's going to be a masterpiece when it's done. And I had to be humbled. You know, I had to be completely humbled because I was arrogant and I just thought, oh, I can just toughen up and I can do that myself. And the reality is I need to count on other people in life because my 401k never came to visit me in the hospital. Very few of my friends did. Few of my family did. My car didn't. It doesn't matter how many square feet I have in my house. That didn't come visit me when I was in the hospital. So... You know, it was, uh, I, I want to put this story out there so that other people can get the lesson of it without having to go through the difficulty of it. It feels really good to be productive, but a lot of the time it's easier said than done, especially when you need to make time to learn about productivity so you can actually, you know, be productive. But you can start your morning off right and be ready to get stuff done in just a few minutes with the Inc. Productivity Tip of the Day podcast. New episodes drop every weekday, so listen and subscribe to Inc. Productivity Tip of the Day wherever you get your podcasts. That's Inc. Productivity Tip of the Day wherever you get your podcasts. You care about your money. Of course you do. So why aren't you listening to SoFi Daily? This podcast will keep you updated on the latest news in the stock market and how it could impact your financial life. Stay on top of what's happening. Listen to SoFi Daily wherever you get your podcasts. That's SoFi Daily wherever you get your podcasts.